Hi there, it's Stuart, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. iFormerX is a community of practice for ambulatory care and community pharmacists where we explore the evidence that informs patient care. And if you're not already a member of iFormerX, I encourage you to sign up. It's free. Just visit iFormerX.org and click on the join or sign in link that's up there in that upper right of the navigation bar. One of the most popular therapeutic topics on iFormerX is the prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, and the treatment of dyslipidemia. And over the past decade, we've critically reviewed an array of lipid trials, but it's been a minute, as they say in the South, since a landmark outcome-driven clinical trial has been published about a lipid-lowering therapy. But I think the CLEAR Outcomes study, which was released in early March 2023, qualifies as a practice-changing study and will undoubtedly lead to changes in guideline recommendations. In the study, benpedoic acid, which was approved by the FDA just prior to the global pandemic in February 2020, was compared to placebo in patients at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular events. And to help us sort through the design, execution, and results of the CLEAR Outcome Study and its implications in practice are Dr. Brianna Williams and Dr. Sarah Edwards from the University of Incarnate Word, Fike School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Joseph Sassine from the University of Colorado Skagg School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Dr. Williams is an ambulatory care pharmacy specialist who practices at the Veterans Affairs Northwest Healthcare Clinic. And Dr. Edwards is in the second year of her two-year pharmacotherapy residency affiliated with Incarnate Word and the University Health System in San Antonio. And I suspect many of our listeners already know Dr. Sassine. Joe has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX. In addition to his appointment with the School of Pharmacy, he is a professor of family medicine And he's a past president of the National Lipid Association. So I'm delighted to have all of you here. Brianna and Sarah, thanks for being here as first-time contributors. And Joe, welcome back. Thanks, Stuart. Very happy here contributing today. Hi, I'm super stoked to be here. Hi, Stuart. I always love talking about lipids. I welcome the opportunity. So, Joe, I'd like to start our conversation with you by setting some of the context for the Clear Outcome Study. Statin therapy has been the mainstay of lipid-lowering therapy for almost three decades now, and there is a long list of landmark clinical trials that have demonstrated their efficacy and safety. But despite their effectiveness, statin therapy doesn't reduce the risk of cardiovascular events to zero. So patients who are at high risk of atherosclerotic events have lots of residual risk. And of course, not everyone is able to tolerate statin therapy, and in some cases are unwilling to take statins. And so over the past decade or so, we've seen a number of agents being developed and approved to be used in combination with statins or for use as alternatives to statins. So Joe, where does benpedoic acid fit in? How is it different than statins? And what is its current place in therapy before the clear outcome study was published in the most recent treatment guidelines. I have to say, lipid-lowering treatment is getting pretty complicated with all these choices. 
Yes, I have to agree that it's getting complicated or it's just really getting interesting again. It's good to see not only new therapies, but novel therapies. So bempidoic acid, as you mentioned, was introduced to the market before the global pandemic, which resulted in sort of a soft launch or a weak launch with not much utilization. But you might also think it didn't have much initial utilization because it was a non-statin drug that was unproven in its ability to reduce cardiovascular outcomes. But whenever we have a non-statin that comes out, you have to ask, how is this compared to the first-line agent, which are statin-based regimens? Pharmacologically, bempidoic acid is similar to a statin and it's an oral product. And it does work on the same pathway as statins, but it works higher up. It's an ATP citrate lyase inhibitor. So it decreases the amount of substrate available for our body to produce cholesterol, which is the pathway that's inhibited by statins. So you can view it as having complementary actions. But as a non-statin drug, perhaps similar to bilases, equestrants, or to some extent, ezetimibe, it is not considered as robust as far as having deep evidence showing cardiovascular event reduction like we have with statin drugs. Now, where does it fall in our current treatment guidelines? Well, 2018 guidelines, bempidoic acid wasn't even on the radar, but we do have what's called an ACC, American College of Cardiology, Expert Consensus Decision Pathway that was published about non-statins just at the end of last year. And it was before the clear outcome study. And really what it highlighted, if you read through that, the message was use statin-based therapy first, Then in your patient who either is statin intolerant, refuses statin therapy, or more importantly, doesn't get to your therapeutic objective, they recommend LDL-lowering therapies that are proven. And that list was restricted to really be azitamibe and PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. But there are two newer kids in the block, one of which is bempidoic acid, and the other one is inclycerin, which is a PCSK9 blocker that were at that time unproven in their ability to reduce cardiovascular outcomes. So they really were reserved to be alternate agents, not only after statins, but after azitamibe and the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. I think most clinicians will follow that because we're evidence-based in the field of hypercholesterolemia as far as not just lowering LDL, but using therapies that reduce cardiovascular events. And now we're at the point where we can look at our arsenal of medications and couple that with the evidence that's available and make more informed decisions on how to treat patients. The last thing I guess I will mention is one of the niches that we have with bempidoic acid is that it was evaluated in a population that's called statin intolerant, which can range from patients using just a low dose of a statin to somebody who who tolerates zero milligrams or no statin therapy. So knowing a little bit more about long-term benefits with any LDL-lowering therapy in that population has been sort of a gap in our evidence also. So now we are in a better position. So Sarah, let, let's talk about the clear outcome study. The, the study was officially published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April 2023, and its title, simply enough, is Benpidoic Acid and Cardiovascular Outcomes in Statin Intolerant Patients. As always, we provide a link to that paper on our website, but I'm hopeful you'll give us a really brief summary of the study methods and some of the key results. This was a double-blind, multi-center, randomized control trial conducted in a little over 30 countries. Investigators wanted to evaluate whether the use of bempidoic acid in patients who had reported intolerances to statins could lower the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE. Patients could enroll if they were 18 to 85 years old, 
and had a history of a cardiac event or were at high risk for having one in the future. They also had to provide written confirmation of statin intolerance, which included educating patients beforehand on the benefits of statins in reducing cardiovascular events. Patients could remain on concomitant lipid-lowering therapies, including statin therapy at lower-than-recommended doses, ezetimibe, and PCSK9 inhibitors, to name a few. What was interesting about the study, Stuart, is that there was an initial run-in period for which all patients received placebo, and then at four weeks could continue on through the trial if their adherence was at least 80%, and this was assessed by tablet count. A little under 14,000 patients were then randomized to receive either bempedoic acid at 180 milligrams by mouth daily or placebo. The primary outcome studied was a reduction in a four-component MACE, which included cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, and coronary revascularization. At around 40 months, the patients randomized to bempedoic acid had a 13% reduction of this four-component MACE, with a number needed to treat of 63 to prevent one such outcome. This was primarily driven by a reduction in myocardial infarction, as well as a reduction in coronary revascularization. Secondary outcomes included the mean percent change in LDL cholesterol at six months, and bempedoic acid expectedly resulted in a greater reduction compared to placebo, with just over a 20% reduction. Regarding adverse effects, patients on bempedoic acid were more likely to experience hyperuricemia, gout, and cholelithiasis compared to placebo, for which cholelithiasis was not observed in prior studies. Elevations of AST and ALT above three times the upper limit of normal were also more frequent with bempedoic acid versus placebo. Muscle pain and new-onset diabetes, however, were comparable between the study arms. So, Brianna, the CLEAR outcome study was a randomized, prospective, double-blind clinical trial, and it was large. It had nearly 14,000 participants, and the investigators chose the four-component major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, as their primary outcome. So, the study appears to follow all the gold standards. But are there aspects of this study we should pay closer attention to? Are there any sources of bias or potential confounders that might have impacted the results? So you're right. This really is kind of a gold standard study that we would consider as far as its design goes. It was double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled. So really one of those very well-designed trials that we look for when we're evaluating cardiovascular outcomes trials. There certainly are a couple other strengths to mention with this trial, and as we'll get to a few limitations that should be noted as well. So the median duration of this trial was right around 40 months, um, so long enough to be able to see your outcomes of interest, but it was notably longer than the duration for both of the PCSK9 inhibitor trials, which were 2.8 and 2.2 years. So considering that, even though this trial went a little bit longer, we still see a similar relative risk reduction with the bempedoic acid as you do compared to the PCSK9 inhibitors, but over a longer duration. Another benefit of this trial was that the baseline characteristics were well-balanced between groups, which you would hopefully expect in a randomized trial of this size. One of the other benefits is that they did have 48% women that were included in this trial, which is almost double that of what you have seen in the Furrier and the Odyssey Outcomes trials and also the Improve It trial that had evaluated azetamibe. The inclusion criteria did allow for patients to be enrolled 
and included if they were either unwilling or unable to take a statin. So not all patients included in this trial were truly statin intolerant. So this doesn't really align with the definition of what statin intolerance is according to the ACC AHA multi-society cholesterol guidelines. Statin intolerant patients are really defined as having a minimum of two statins that should have been attempted and uh, unable to be tolerated, including at least one at the lowest approved daily dosage. Despite this, actually allowing patients to be enrolled that were either unwilling or unable to take a statin really more closely aligns with actual clinical practice, which we believe strengthens the external validity of this trial. They also included 70% of patients that were secondary prevention, so already had a history of a cardiovascular event, and 30% therefore were primary prevention patients that had certain risk factors and therefore were at higher risk for having a cardiovascular event. This also strengthens the external validity of the trial because you can apply the results of this study to both of these populations. Kind of when considering some of the other agents that would commonly be used in a scenario with a patient that might have statin intolerance, the IMPROVE-IT trial and the PCSK9 inhibitor trials all focused on secondary prevention patients. So that is another benefit of this trial. Moving on to talk just a little bit about some of the limitations within this trial. As Sarah had mentioned, they did have a four-week run-in period at which participants received a single-blind placebo. If their adherence was found to be less than 80% according to tablet count, they were deemed ineligible for randomization. We believe that this somewhat limits external validity of this trial as statin adherence in clinical practice can be a real challenge and is unlikely that all of the patients in someone's practice site is actually adherent 80% of the time to their cholesterol therapies. In addition, patients were allowed to receive concomitant lipid-lowering therapy while they were on bempidoic acid, some of them being on azetamibe, PCSK9 inhibitors, just to name a few of them. And so really understanding the true effect of bempidoic acid could be a little bit unclear. Also, the trial did not indicate how many patients were on aspirin at baseline. And considering that the majority of the patients included in this trial had a history of a cardiovascular event, that would be something important to know. The last thing to really consider was when evaluating the subgroup analysis for this trial, there were some interesting findings here. So the results were primarily driven by a reduced risk in primary prevention patients and it was not actually significant when looking at the primary endpoint for just secondary prevention patients, so those that already have a history of a cardiovascular event. This is uh, certainly surprising as you would expect almost the opposite to occur, especially because the majority of this trial was composed of patients that were secondary prevention. The other part to consider is that patients that were on azetamibe or statin therapy at baseline did not show a statistically significant difference in the primary outcome. When looking at these subgroup analyses, we really only saw that in patients that were not taking other therapies at baseline. So, Bree, Joe, I'm wondering what we should do in practice. Should we preferentially use bempidoic acid in all patients who are unable to tolerate or don't wish to take a statin? In other words, should Benpidoic acid be considered the, quote, alternative to statin therapy in all patients 
who are eligible for a statin or perhaps just for some patients who are eligible for a statin? Yeah, Stuart, I think that that really is the key question here. Bempidoic acid is a reasonable option to consider in patients that are either unwilling or unable to take statin therapy. But one thing that we should still consider is that its benefits in this trial still don't compare to that of our tried and true statin therapies. So as Sarah had mentioned in the results section, the LDL cholesterol lowering associated with bempidoic acid was really right around 20%. And when we compare that to, say, a low-intensity statin or even azetamibe, that is really where this drug is lining up as far as its LDL cholesterol lowering potential. When we consider more of a moderate or a high-intensity statin, which really should be reserved for patients that are at higher risk of cardiovascular events or those with a history of diabetes, we really aren't seeing that great of LDL cholesterol lowering. So I don't foresee this medication taking over for statin therapy, but certainly is one of the options that we can now consider in patients that may not be able to tolerate the appropriate dose or achieve their goals with statin therapy alone. The other thing to kind of consider with this is just some of the side effects and how this medication is administered. So it does have benefits, as Joe had mentioned in the beginning. It is an oral once-daily medication, which certainly is a benefit, especially when you're comparing it to a PCSK9 inhibitor that is injectable only. However, we do also have to consider some of the side effects that we found in this trial. So cholelithiasis, um, hyperuricemia, and gout risk were just a few of the side effects that you should really consider when you're trying to pick a medication for lipid-lowering therapy in this patient population. Yes, great minds think alike. And so I agree with what you said, Bree. I guess to expound on a few sort of more subtle points, When you look at what we have available to reduce risk for secondary prevention patients, I can't ignore the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies because as you alluded to, the ability of bempidoc acid to lower LDL cholesterol is, in my opinion, in your opinion, comparable to what we see with azitamibe. It is not comparable to what we see with PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, which reduce LDL cholesterol 50 to 60%. So I do have to say I'm thrilled that we have another oral option that is proven to reduce cardiovascular events. But for our high, high risk or our very high risk secondary prevention patients, they're the ones that need the most robust reductions in LDL cholesterol. And comparing apples to oranges is the comparison that I have as far as the LDL lowering that is seen with PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies versus bempidoic acid and also the event lowering. The more you reduce LDL cholesterol, in my opinion, the more you reduce cardiovascular events. And that's why we're always going to see, in my opinion, superior reductions in both with the consideration of a monoclonal antibody, a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody. Another thing I do want to sort of expound on a little bit, the results were basically driven by the primary prevention cohort in the clear outcomes trial, which you said was unexpected. And I did not expect that either. And I have to sort of think, you know, Why would that be? These patients had an LDL at baseline in enrollment in this trial of about 140. So in primary prevention, making a reduction from 140 down to the low 100s probably gives you a good bang for your buck. But if you're a secondary prevention patient, you need 50 plus percent reduction to really see a big benefit. So maybe that explains a little bit why secondary prevention patients fell a little short of the target compared to primary prevention. 
lastly, I guess the other thing I'd expound on is that definition of statin intolerance. Wow, it can be everything from people having side effects to a higher dose of a statin or side effects to any dose of a statin, or it could be a term I call statin defiance, which is your patient who refuses a statin because of mis- or disinformation. And Sometimes you just have to treat the patient holistically um, and use shared decision-making. And this is going to be an option. At least it is proven with prospective evidence to reduce cardiovascular events, again, driven mostly by the primary prevention cohort. It is an option that we have that is an oral agent. So I think it's good to have another one in our arsenal of combating cardiovascular disease, which bottom line is still the number one cause of mortality in the United States. So I'm glad that we have this option. It's just not ready to take over for statins and not ready to take over for some of the more robust non-statin options at lower LDL and cardiovascular risk. Well, Sarah, Bree, Joe, it's been a pleasure to have all three of you here on the iFormerX podcast today. And I have a feeling that people are going to be talking about and debating the clear outcome study for the next few months. So tell us what you think. Should benpidoic acid become the preferred go-to treatment in those patients who can't tolerate a statin or simply refuse to take one? You can leave a comment about the commentary and podcast by visiting iformerx.org. Only members of iformerx can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. So be sure to join today. And for those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, be sure to check out the Literature Evaluation and Evidence-Based Practice Series produced by the American Pharmacists Association. It's part of their board prep and recertification program, and this commentary and podcast will be included in that program later this year. So check it out. We provide a link at the bottom of the commentary. And lastly, I'd like to acknowledge a few people who have agreed to join our advisory board, Dr. Caitlin O'Brien from the Boston Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Anna Love from the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Dr. Madison Yates, who is just finishing up her PGY2 ambulatory care residency at Cone Health, and hopefully will have landed a plum position by the time this podcast airs. Caitlin, Anna, and Madison have made significant contributions to iFormerX over this past year, and I know they will help us make iFormerX even better. If you want to learn more about how you can get more involved with iFormerX, just send me an email at iFormerX at gmail.com or check out the Contribute to iFormerX links, which are located at the bottom right of our homepage. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX signing off.